0: Welcome to The Stumbling Spirit, contemplations on the path of resilience. Whether you realize it or not, you are resilient. It's your birthright. As you take in your next breath, know this truth. It's not only about your capacity to overcome difficult situations, but it's about your courage to do the necessary work to heal, learn, grow, and move forward. What you gain is invaluable wisdom. And it's through these hard stumbles in life that we often discover a new purpose that aligns with our spirit. My name is Fabio da Silva Fernandez, Reiki master, mindfulness coach, and mystical explorer. Join me weekly as the Stumbling Spirit podcast highlights the lives of extraordinary people like you, sharing transformative stories and beneficial practices of resilience to guide you on your wellness journey. For many of us, the COVID pandemic forced us to pause and reset. In some cases, people left their long-established careers for something new. Well before the Great Resignation, Rosmina Munji transitioned out of her successful career in the corporate world to the public sector and immersed deeper into her psychotherapy and mindfulness practice. She is a practitioner of several holistic modalities, including yoga and craniosacral therapy. Rose is a scholar teacher, thinker, and researcher in the ever-expanding field of mindfulness and is here today to delve deeper into this topic as we chat about social change and more. It is an absolute pleasure to have my friend and mentor, Rosmina Manji on the show. Welcome, Rose.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here, Fabio.
0: You know a lot about mindfulness. This is no joke. You are a mindfulness teacher at University of Toronto, at the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion, at the Center for Mindfulness Studies. You are co-writing a book at the moment on mindfulness, compassion, race-based trauma and social justice, and you have your master's in spiritual care and Buddhist studies at University of Toronto. And in addition, you are a PhD candidate in education at Reading University in the UK. I wanted to start this conversation by asking you, and of course, I'm a mindfulness coach, but this is your area of study. What is mindfulness?
1: That's an interesting question because there are many definitions of mindfulness and many approaches to defining mindfulness. Very briefly, it's a way of being in the present moment, paying attention to what is arising without judgment, but with discernment, with intention, and with certain attitudes of openness and presence and beginner's mind. This definition of mindfulness that I just shared encompasses a lot of the um, definitions that are um, secular-based, that come from evidence-based mindfulness programs people like Jon Kabat-Zinn and some researchers, writers, scholars in mindfulness. But there are many other perspectives on mindfulness and many sort of um, possible integrations with cultural practices, keeping in mind the roots of mindfulness coming from early Buddhist practice and scripture. It's a complex topic, (laughs)
0: There's an element of surrender when it comes to mindfulness, isn't there?
1: It's an interesting choice of words, right? Surrender. So it's allowing, it's being um, with what is, without resisting, uh, without pushing away, denying what's happening in the moment. So absolutely, surrender is a good way to describe it.
0: And it's interesting because when we reflect on what we've been through over the past three years, in many ways, the world has been forced to surrender to the moment. Mm-hmm. And yeah. by that, I mean in relation to COVID.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So in that sense, it, you can look at it as um, surrender or Recognizing when there are things that you can't control, that you need to kind of make your way through or be with. And then I think part of mindfulness is also recognizing what your current circumstances are and not being in denial of that. And so not intended as a way to bypass around issues or around feelings. It's not necessarily intended as a feel-good practice. So I think that it's misunderstood in many ways. And even with COVID, mindfulness-related skills and approaches have been really important for many reasons. Because during this time, we've also seen what is under the surface, you know, that, that has been troubling people as well as what are the opportunities to come together, you know, in community and support each other. Um, you know,
0: one of the things I like saying about mindfulness is that it's not really about becoming happy. It's about softening the edges of suffering.
1: Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. So how can we be with what is with a sense of maybe greater awareness, greater acceptance in a, in a particular way. It's not a blind acceptance, but it's, but it's an informed approach.
0: In reflection of this period that we are emerging from, right? I mean, we're still in the space of COVID, but the pause that this event gave the world, mm-hmm. in some ways, was kind of a reset right? Because we were forced to slow down, whether we wanted to or not. We were forced to reflect on our circumstances and make choices about whether we wanted to stay in our existing situation or move past it and do something else, or at least this is true for many people. And then you have the situation where obviously many people died, And many people suffered as a result of this disease and the healing and the trauma as a result of that. I mean, that's very real for a lot of people. And then there are the different perspectives on COVID, on the vaccines, on how we should reintegrate into society. When I think about all those things, how can we? approach this period of time with a mindful lens and from a compassionate space and still sit with our integrity?
1: It could be a simple answer, like we need to kind of step into our awareness and recognize what's happening and how we're affected. I think connection is very important. Human connection, connection with community, with your tribe, with your what your chosen family, your family, appreciation of all of the resources that we have and all of the supports, as well as a recognition of what is challenging and, and maybe missing and difficult in our society. The earth certainly did a reset. <laughs> And we reset our lives in, in a particular way. So we weren't as busy, maybe we weren't driving as much. We were isolating or um, keeping more to ourselves, maybe within our bubbles at times, our, our our community or friend bubbles that we were at times had. And so this is multifaceted, right? So so there's a lot of different different approaches. I think, Part of it is with awareness, with, um, with intentionality, with maybe gratitude and appreciation, and also with a willingness to see what's really there, like to, with an openness, a willingness, kind of like the beginner's mind idea. You know, mindfulness has been known to um, help dismantle bias. And in order to dismantle bias, we need to be aware of our implicit biases. Or, you know, to help us take a look at how are we living our lives? You know, the busyness that we have, where is that coming from? And why do we have these busy lives? And what, are we, what would we really like to accomplish? What our needs are? What our values are? And so mindfulness-based practices and approaches, I think, as well as compassion, which includes a component of mindfulness, are helpful and I think necessary to support us as we navigate through these questions. They're almost like existential questions. With my MPS background, not even on purpose, but often when I'm speaking with clients, what ends up um, coming forward is like a kind of spiritual crisis or distress or something that, that comes out because these are these big life questions. You know, it, it doesn't have to be necessarily called spirituality, but that's the the flavor of it. That's the, the aspect of it that's coming out, big existential life questions.
0: I found myself during that period unplugging from the news.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And one of the practices, I love doing it anyway, but I did it a lot more during COVID, particularly those times when everything was shut down. Is I went out on a lot of nature walks mm. and I really found that grounding, just being in nature, not really thinking about anything else other than me walking through a trail, observing the trees, listening to the birds. And it was beautiful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was really nice to to be in nature, actually, as a way of connecting. The air felt cleaner. <laughs> Um, Absolutely. It was quieter walking in the Don Valley trails during COVID versus now is completely different. You 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 hear all the traffic and the buzz from the city whereas during COVID that wasn't there. Um I did a lot of nature walking as well and we weren't really able to go anywhere or do anything so a lot of sort of local hikes and things like that. But it was so nourishing and nurturing to be able to do that for sure.
0: Now, you and I used to work together. It was a very fast-paced corporate world, banking clients, stressful. There was a point at which you made a choice to leave that world to pursue a career that was more in alignment with your purpose. When you think back to that time, what reflections do you have now after having worked through that for so many years and being where you are now?
1: We did work together and um, I actually have some fond memories of that time, as well as remembering the challenges of that environment, you know, related to, like, like you said, banking clients. I was traveling a lot. It was very fast paced. I actually still keep in touch with many of my colleagues, including you. So I think that says something positive about the people in this particular environment. And then at the same time, it was, um, I needed mindfulness to kind of help me to to get through life and to be with everything and to be stressed and, and also help me to make some changes to, to look, look at, you know, what are my values, what's important to me, I didn't stop working. I just left the the corporate world and went into a more public sector, not for profit, that that kind of work more so. So I have one of these, I heard the term the other day, a slash career. So it's, a, I'm a mindfulness teacher slash registered psychotherapist slash business process change analyst manager. So I still do some work in that field, but in a different capacity for different applications and and different organizations that aren't actually corporate. It's a very different um, environment to do that work in. It's the pace is actually more, more drawn out. The issues are different. The people are different. I like having this hybrid slash career, you know, that gives me a lot of variety, a lot of interest, the ability to follow my passion, my what I value the most. So I think more and more we're seeing these types of careers. So the thing that in the past you would have done when you retired after you retired, people are doing that now in conjunction with their job, for example.
0: I asked the question because I went through my own process during COVID where I left that corporate career. And there was a point at which when I had an inflection point, and without getting into details, it was that inflection point that had me ask some very deep questions about, is this really what I should be doing? Am I happy? Do I need this stress? What can I do to live a life that is more aligned with my purpose. And so when I asked those questions, it just was automatic. I just thought, look, you know, you've done all of this study. Why don't you just apply that and make it into a business? I think that there's a lot of people during this period of time that are having that similar awakening of questioning where they are questioning whether there is purpose in having material things, all of these different things, these questions are emerging. And so in some ways, you know, when I think about your story, I think you were a little bit ahead of your time. (laughs) You know what I mean? I say that in jest, but it sounds like you probably had similar reflections at that time.
1: The shift for me began well before COVID. And COVID kind of catapulted me into really embracing some things more fully that I hadn't before. And so what I was up against were organizational value from that sort of corporate world that didn't connect with my personal values and it was also the, um, the interpersonal relationship part of it of how the interactions went with managers or clients or what promises were being made or what the motivations were for for moving forward in a particular way for this constant need for change and new things and introducing brand new shiny objects all the time into the the final product and that caused caused a lot of stress for a lot of people and it was unsustainable and eventually it, it doesn't last. And so that's the kind of the idea of the frenetic pace or, or the, that race, you know, that we're all going for more and more and more. And that's what I think I was at odds with. I still had some good friends. The work was interesting, all of these things. But it's it's that idea of like, who do I want to be? And what do I want to devote my energy to? Uh, that's something I've been thinking about for a long time. And in my personal life, I have an elderly mom with Alzheimer's and she was diagnosed quite early. And so I think Having that situation in my life helped me to make different choices, even though it was so difficult. It really made me think about my legacy. What what do I want to leave behind? How do I want to interact with the world? what brings me meaning, you know, these big questions, what makes my life more meaningful? Can I do something different? So I actually did my change very gradually, I went down to a modified work week, and I was lucky that that was one of the good things about the organization I was with is that they supported that. And I was able to do some things like volunteer work, I've taken these little leaves and gone off and done volunteer work, for organizations I believe in, like I, I worked at the Aga Khan Agency for microfinance for a few months and helped them with some projects and did a few, you know, teaching mindfulness at the 519. That was like a weekly thing that I did. I think that we can create meaning and know what our, our greater purpose is if we start to explore early on. It doesn't mean it's all or nothing, right? So, how do we introduce balance and how do we how do we navigate? How do we navigate through? Because the reality is that many people are facing financial hardship. And, you know, many people don't even have clean drinking water in these um, northern places, right, where there are a lot of indigenous people, many people are facing discrimination and oppression. And so they're not in a position, we're not in a position, many of us to, to to quit our jobs and follow our passion. It's just not a reality that we have to pay the bills, right? So that makes it challenging. So how can we find ways to kind of creatively, with support, I think support community, affinity groups, like-minded people, helping each other with resources. I think this needs to happen more and more. I think that's that, that sense of isolation that we can't, It's not sustainable. We can't survive like that as human beings.
0: I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about corporate values. You teach mindful leadership. And in fact, I took a workshop with you. That was really transformative for me. What is mindful leadership?
1: I think mindful leadership is thoughtful leadership. To be a mindful leader, I think one has to look within. Be aware of our own blind spots, our own motivations, our own values, and be open to, in a way, being vulnerable to connection with those who you're leading, those who you're working with and connecting with and clients and employees and colleagues and the company itself, So. I think it takes a sense of uh, awareness, mindfulness of what you're doing, why you're doing it, as well as an empathic and compassionate approach. So a leader who really listens to the people that they're leading is going to be a different leader or a leader that wants to learn, you know, what, what is the motivation? Is it to achieve a certain outcome at all costs? Or is it you know, to get there in a way that that is sustainable and makes sense, not just financially, but also with what you're actually building.
0: Do you think it's possible for a company to be mindful?
1: I think it's possible. Yes. I guess I'm an optimist, but I do think it's possible. I think, though, that it does take attention to the values of the organization, to Embedding those values within the strategy of the organization to understand what that even means. What does being mindful even mean? How far do you take it? You know, what about diversity? What about sustainability? What about the impact on the environment? What about living according to your values? Approaching your relationships according to your values. The relationships with clients and employees, and how products are developed. So I think it is possible. I think though that that concept has to be embedded into the entire organization at all levels, at many many different aspects of the organization. Everyone in some way has to be a part of that. So whether it's senior leadership, I think often senior leadership has to kind of set an example or state the objectives and be very clear about it so that the people who are actually doing the hands-on operational day-to-day work know that and feel supported in that. And there has to be a feedback loop. So there's many ways that that can happen. You know, you could we could construct a dream company <laughs> a dream organization that where mindfulness is in, embedded in, in every aspect of the company. So it's that idea of going from me to we. One of our favorite teachers, Michelle Shaban, talks a lot about me to we. You know, I think that's really what it is. Even uh, I was reading Purser's Mindfulness the other day, and he talks about that too, about moving from I to we. It's not just about the individual, it's about the collective. It's about the impact we have on each other. And on the world.
0: What I've observed through my experience in the corporate world is that, especially for public companies, they're beholden to shareholders, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's this idea of shareholder value and ensuring that we're meeting our numbers, right? What I've also observed is that often in these organizations, there are many people that have really good intentions. They do want to be more mindful, and sometimes there will be mindfulness groups, and there will be groups of people that will get together and hold mindfulness practices. And and that's all amazing. But when the structures of an organization don't support that, how do you navigate that situation?
1: Yeah, that's really challenging, because often certain values are professed and discussed, but they're not acted upon. So we're not practicing these things. What's happening is it part of the image where it's, it's on the surface, but it's not going all the way down to the level of, of actual practice. And also how we define success and what shareholders want, you know, what that, that, that idea of the, um, that kind of ne- neoliberal perspective, right? Of what is more important, the financials, making money, offering return on investment, you know, are there any other indicators of success? Do, you do What do people really value? And how can you maybe achieve a bit of both? Those are big questions. For example, there's a value that's talked about of you know, treating employees with respect or with kindness or taking care of the people who are actually producing the products and interacting with the clients and running the company, and then at certain levels, like, for example, human resources, who do they really support? and What are the, do, do employees get heard? You know, whose voice is more powerful? Whose voice is louder? Whose voice is, is actually respected?
0: If I'm a manager in one of these organizations, or better yet, if I'm an executive or Or CEO, and I'm listening to this podcast, what would you suggest to them to introduce mindfulness more thoroughly in an integrated way within their organization?
1: I think definitely opportunities for both staff and management to practice mindfulness, to learn about mindfulness, as well as to understand what it means to integrate mindfulness, attitudes, approaches into the work, including in the communications, in the relationship, in things like reviews and defining success, defining the values of, of the organization or the department. So I think it needs to be deeply embedded into various parts of the organization.
0: And embedded in such a way that it is focused on wellness, and not productivity.
1: Yeah, so if it's only about productivity at the cost of, or at the detriment of employees or you know, whoever is, is the stakeholder, then that's not sustainable. That's not gonna be something that makes people stay and, and makes people want to do, want to do a good job. And it's gonna have a trickling effect. It's gonna have a rippling effect.
0: The benefits in an organization for introducing mindfulness would be?
1: There's so many, so many studies, right? So many benefits that are possible. Often the focus is on productivity, but uh, the relationship, focus, maybe better quality of life. Like you said, well-being. People actually want to be there, enjoy working with each other, want to produce something meaningful, want to do meaningful work. Most likely there will be improvements on what is being produced, like what what is the final product, and also the relationships with suppliers or other stakeholders, shareholders, boards, all of that. There are many benefits that are possible besides the obvious.
0: I introduced some mindfulness concepts to my team when I was working in the corporate world, and a couple of the things that they shared with me that I thought was really profound is they felt they could be their full self and it improved the way they were able to communicate with one another. There was greater trust and collaboration.
1: Yeah, I think um, many people have trouble with connection, with fitting in, with belonging because of whatever you know, it, may, it might be their identity, it might be past experiences. And so, having being able to trust each other and trust their manager is a big deal that directly impacts the nervous system. And when the nervous system is activated, as you know, we go into fight, flight, or freeze. That's when the problems happen in relationships, in learning, in being able to do the work, in being able to even be present. So absolutely, people showing up and able to be themselves and speak their minds and be able to, to have their ideas heard, to be valued, to be respected.
0: To be recognized.
1: Exactly. To be acknowledged. So you notice even from small changes or from specific things that you did with them that it already impacted them in a positive way.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And that's just within a small group. Imagine well, op- what that would be like.
1: Yeah. Well, often I think what's important there is that you showed up and you you were involved in that with them. I think that makes a difference. So, in your capacity as a manager, a leader, you showed up and and actually walked the walk with them, as opposed to sending them on a course and saying, "Okay, come back and now." be productive and be mindful.
0: It was really powerful to not only go through that process with my team, but also see in real time, the benefits that these mindfulness concepts and practices were having on their lives.
1: Yeah, I found too, in, in, in the public sector settings that I've worked for, people get a lot of benefit from the mindfulness practices and approaches and like groups. But again, it does take support from the leadership.
0: Now we're going to sort of move from corporate structures to something much wider. Mm -hmm. So when you look back at the last few years in relation to political and social division, racial injustice, the women's movement, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, what happened during COVID, we just talked about that. In your mindful reflection of all that we've been through, what hope do you have for the future and what challenges we still face?
1: Well, I really hope that whatever we have learned in the last few years is something that we continue to remember and that continues to inform how we move forward as a society. I think a lot was uncovered with a lot of sort of structural and societal inequities and various communities really being harmed, facing precarious situations. And so I think it's important to let go of the shame and the the barriers that are there and be human beings, really, to be able to be human, to be able to recognize what the issues are, to be able to, to be willing, to be vulnerable, to look within, and to cultivate certain values. Or values of supporting each other as human beings, supporting the planet, taking care of the planet, because this is part of our future. So recognizing all of these inequities, I think a lot of people, maybe they have good intentions, like you said, they just don't know what to do about it. They feel like it's not their problem. something's going on halfway around the world. There's civil unrest, there's poverty, there's whatever is happening. And even in our own backyard, right? There's a lot going on. I feel like if each person really stepped into their power and their ability to do something good, to make a difference, and to be in community with other human beings, to really see each other and listen to each other, truth and reconciliation, a lot of the the talks that I had and the research that I did, it was all about listening and understanding and acknowledging and then making a commitment. What can I do? What can, whatever position you're in, whatever kind of institution you are or you work for, there is something that everyone can do, but we have to believe that we can do it and we have to let go of the stuckness. We get stuck in, in shame and get stuck in helplessness and and all of these things. But I really think that if we saw each other as human beings, and we saw non-human beings as well, uh, as part of our collective community, and that would make a, a very big difference. Thich Nhat Hanh would probably talk about interbeing and he talks about falling in love with the planet, cultivating that love of the planet, and also love of fellow human beings.
0: What exciting things can you share about your area of study?
1: Um, So far, I've done um, research involving focus groups with, um, I call them racial affinity focus groups. And the idea was to talk with various groups of people and ask them questions about their experiences with mindfulness and compassion approaches related to any experiences of racism, oppression, marginalization. And also sort of exploring this idea of, you know, the terminology that we use, uh, BIPOC, for example, Black Indigenous People of Color. What does that mean? Is it meaningful? Do they connect with that? with that kind of terminology. And that's kind of a whole other topic. But what I found really exciting and interesting were the relationships that were developed and the ongoing um, spark of creativity and change within these communities. So many people who were involved in the research ended up, maybe because of the way the focus groups were structured, ended up Connecting with each other, or having additional resources, or go moving on to include their understanding and whatever awareness they gained from being a part of the research into the work that they're doing. So I find that really amazing, and also my relationships with them. It was just such an honor to be a part of these groups, just to. To listen, I was just asking questions, facilitating and listening and discovering the stories and the shared humanity, even the differences. You know, I think these are important as well, to be honored to kind of be a part of that and, and to to witness these conversations. And so now I'm taking it further, and this is the PhD work. I'm looking at Canada, the UK, and South Africa, which is where I'm originally from and then doing in-depth interviews. So I'll be interviewing people from each country and talking about mindfulness and compassion approaches for addressing the effects of racism and oppression and looking at ways that we can introduce mindfulness-based teaching and learning informed by anti-oppression and anti-racism. So that's really exciting. And what's coming out of the research right now is a sense of the key themes that we've identified many, many hours of coding the data and, and understanding the data and making sense of it. So there are seven themes that are coming out related to things like belonging and the meaning of mindfulness and compassion in people's lives. Identity. How do we perceive our own ad- identity and, and um what does belonging mean and various aspects like that? So, so it's exciting to, to be following these threads and, and seeing what I've never seen. I've, I've done a lot of reading, read other people's research um, articles and books and studies, and I haven't seen anything quite like this in that work. So it is really exciting. I'm hoping that it has applications in education as well as clinical Applications and that hopefully it will help a lot of people, a lot of clinicians, teachers, students, practitioners. That all of these people, including myself, will will benefit. Um, and I have a, a wonderful research partner that I did the pilot project with, Shauna McPherson, who's a professor at University of Fraser Valley. She teaches in the mindfulness-based teaching and learning program and has written a lot with Dr. Pat Rockman. I'm uh, blessed to have all of these elders in our community, in our mindfulness community at large, to have their support and their guidance as I navigate through this.
0: That's amazing. It'll be really exciting to see everything that happens as a result of your research.
1: Thank you for asking. I, I don't get to talk about it often. <laughs> it feels like it's my own private thing that I'm, that I'm always thinking about. And so it's nice to speak about it.
0: What is resilience?
1: I've been thinking about this a lot, actually. Sometimes when I think about what something is, I also think about what it's not or what it's supposed to be. So I think resilience is important, of course, because it is what helps us to be in our experience in a way that is steady. So there's a a kind of equanimous component, a balanced component to resilience. It's about being able to move through challenges and difficulty with a sense of groundedness. Um, It's about inner strength and the ability to be with what is arising. So it's definitely a mindfulness or mindfulness-informed quality. But I think, too, that we tend to, in our society, maybe privilege resilience over our vulnerability. And I think that vulnerability and truth, seeking the truth, all of these need to be a part of building resilience. I think there's this expectation that we should be resilient when we're going through grief or loss or change. We need to just bounce back on the other side and that being resilient means that we'll be okay in six weeks or six months. And that's actually not the case. I think being resilient and resiliency is about honesty with ourselves, the ability to look within and to really understand what is my capacity? What are my values? How do I want to live my life? So resiliency is like a big topic, right? Just like all the other topics we've talked about today. I think we need to be careful in not creating an expectation that is you know all things for all people, that it's about knowing yourself and knowing how you want to navigate in the world and what your capacity is. and being able to communicate that without shame or, or fear of being judged.
0: What is your practice of resilience?
1: So I am a big believer in movement. I need to have movement as um, a part of my life. So I like to rock climb. I like to walk and run and bike and dance and all of these things. Music. I like chanting. So I do a lot of practices that are part of my mindfulness practice, as important as, you know, daily meditation practice, silent or guided meditation, loving kindness and compassion have been really huge for me, as well as equanimity. So I, I have always practiced loving kindness from from a very long time ago, and it was instrumental during COVID. But this practice of giving and receiving compassion, and being compassionate towards myself, like a self compassion has been instrumental in recent years. And as a caregiver, as someone who does a lot of teaching and and guiding as a therapist and even even as a change manager and and a trainer and a mindfulness trainer equanimity is is really important practicing compassion for myself and offering it to others and really it's a it's a hard practice but but trying to cultivate more and more honesty and really looking within what is my value? What is my capacity? What's important? How do I want to communicate that? Am I being true to myself as well as others? So I think depending on how we're brought up, what our culture cultures are that we've grown up in and our society... For me, I just really need to slow down and and take a step back and really practice discernment. And the daily meditation, and I also have a daily writing practice that I do, really um, supports me in that, in in just knowing, okay, what what do I need right now? And I don't always know, and many people don't, and we learn. But yeah, and, and the ability to be vulnerable, like have people that support you, say when you need help. I think that's really important for me as well. And hard, actually, hard for, for a high achiever, uh, carer type person.
0: What are the benefits of these resilience practices for you?
1: They keep me sane and 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 as grounded as I can be. And it's actually these practices, mindfulness in particular, the, the compassion and loving kindness practices too, And the physical kind of practices of movement and strength have given me more confidence in myself over the years and have let me know that I can change and that change is okay because change is the hardest thing for humans. And that even if something feels difficult in the moment, that I'll get through it and that I'll know what to do. So it's just that confidence, um, belief in myself, belief in others too belief in humanity, the ability to to find some gratitude and optimism and ease in certain situations or when life is tough.
0: Rose, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. It meant so much to me.
1: Thank you. It's my, my honor and my pleasure to be here and I admire you. I'm I'm a big fan of you, Fabio. You're living what you what your values are. And that's not easy to do.
0: That really means a lot to me. Yeah. And I feel the same way about you.
1: Thank you.
0: Thank you again.
1: Always a pleasure.
0: If you wish to contact Rosmina Munji, her email address is mindful at com. That's R-O-S-E-M-I-N-A-M-U-N-J-E-E dot com. Thank you for listening to The Stumbling Spirit, Contemplations on the Path of Resilience. This is Fabio da Silva Fernandez. Join me again next week for another episode of transformative stories and beneficial practices to guide you on your wellness journey. If you wish, you can follow and DM me on Instagram at the Stumbling Spirit. Until next time, take a deep breath and another step forward on your path of resilience. <sighs>